This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, it's Empire's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. We've got something a little different today. Instead of the usual Friday twofer, Lauren Groff is on the pod. If you're listening to an NPR Books podcast, I doubt I've got to introduce her, but just in case, she's the author of of Fates and Furies, Florida, Matrix, all of which were nominated for the National Book Award. And as you'll hear, we had this really great conversation about, well, a lot of stuff, you know, writing, dying, climate change, the usefulness of fiction, and more. She's got a new book out now. It's called The Vaster Wilds. It takes place in Jamestown, 1610. Now, this was not a great time for the colonists in Jamestown, you know. Scholars call it the starving times. The Powhatan people have gotten the colony under siege, and everyone is hungry or sick or dying or dead. We'll hear more about what entranced her about this time period after the break. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. I actually met up with Lauren Groff for this interview at a library at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. The folks there were kind enough to pull out a few editions of the narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson. It's a first-hand account of Mary Rowlandson's kidnap and capture by the Native people. And Lauren starts off the interview talking about how captivity narratives were the start of her new book. Yeah, well, it was where the book started, and then I realized that I was writing an anti-captivity narrative. Actually, the inverse of a captivity narrative. Uh-huh. Yeah. So for people who don't know, what is a captivity narrative? Well, especially in early America, it was a narrative of basically the eruption of European culture and indigenous culture. And um, often the Christians would be seized by Aboriginal peoples and held for ransom and then released. And then the captivity narrative was the narrative of what happened. As I understand, it was like low-key propaganda? It was high-key propaganda. No, these are not subtle texts uh-huh. whatsoever. I mean, Increase Mather and Cotton Mather were instrumental in collecting them. Um, they, they are meant to basically justify genocide and sort of the, the European expansion across North America. At the same time, it is true, especially in this one, Mrs. Mary Rollinson's um, captivity narrative, there are moments of actual humanity that are sort of boiling up through the story that is being told that is to justify Christian murder. (laughs) So it it is interesting as as a historical document. These are historical documents that we... um, like to look at because they're fascinating. They do actually give you an idea of the mindsets of the colonists. Um, So I was interested in the mindset of the colonists, um, but I also wanted to see how far I could push against sort of that mindset in my own work. And eventually it did become something other than what I thought it was going to be at first. 
Grav's protagonist, a girl with many names, was adopted from an English poorhouse and taken to the colony by a well-off family. At the start of the book, she's run away, and she's scared. But she's starting to question all the stories she's been told about this new world and its murderous inhabitants. I think, can I have you read a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. And likewise, while the men of the fort whispered and spoke these stories of fear, there was a part of the girl that resisted, that sang in low counterpoints, reminding her of the bridge over the river in the city of her birth, and the way the enemies of the late queen had had their heads stuck aloft on pikes, their beards flapping in a hard wind, and their mouths open and deaf, so it seemed that they were silently screaming. And all the while, beneath this vaunting of death, the carts heavy with their vegetables, their turnips, and their cabbages rolled serenely on, and the farmers thought of the beer and bread awaiting them, and took no notice of these horrid tokens of death. For, verily, godlessness and murder, the girl knew, were certainly not limited to the people of this new country. Tell me about this girl. She's on the run. Yeah. What is she seeing, and how does she see? She seems acutely aware of the propaganda being sold to her, right? Maybe not at first, I think. I mean, I think um, what I was at least attempting to do in this book was trying to show the mindset of a person who comes to the new world, sort of having been raised in Christianity, right, in the the Protestantism of England, London at that time, um, really believes narratives that have been told to her about her own worth, about the worth of um, the people around her. And then through the famine in the starving time in Jamestown, uh, she starts to lose some of those narratives. And then through the really... um, rugged and actually kind of somewhat also ecstatic um, motion of her body through the landscape, she starts to see even more past the, the scrim of the narratives that have been received in her, I hope. Yeah. yeah. And I think in that section, uh, because of the weight of, uh, I guess, the famine and the harshness of the world, on top of what we later find out, and I won't spoil, she goes through, or she saw, there's almost like a is nihilism the right word? I mean, I don't know if it's nihilism, is it? It's sort of, it's almost a comforting thought, I think, right? The, the idea that um, beyond the Anthropocene, after humans, there will still be life, right? Uh-huh. There will still be beauty. It actually gives me a great deal of comfort. I, um, My husband told me, I want to say five to ten years ago, that there are these um, drills that are digging down deeper than humans have ever gone. And at every layer, they found life. And I think that in the rock, right, that it, I, that's so profound, right? That's so beautiful. That means that life can exist beyond what we're doing to the planet, um, which may be nihilistic mm-hmm. uh, in terms of centering the human. But it also means that it's it's a much bigger project than we who put ourselves at the center seem to believe. The girl... I keep going, she has like five different names. I don't know. I keep calling I her the girl. So <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mean to like, oh, the girl the over girl. here. The girl. <laughs> That's part of the book too. Yeah. 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 Um, the girl does encounter a few um, indigenous people along mm-hmm. her travels as she's running. Mm-hmm. Um, she keeps her distance. They mm-hmm. keep their distance. Can you talk a little bit about approaching writing the indigenous characters in the book? Sure. Uh, you know, it's tricky, right? It's a balance. Um, the indigenous story is not my story to tell. Uh, I think I've, I realized that very early on in writing this book. Um, but it would not be realistic for her not to have been in contact, right? 
But what I really wanted to pay attention to was ideas of God, right? And ideas of nature and um, humans' relationship to nature and God. And it wasn't necessarily a story of this individual's uh, interaction with indigenous peoples, more of uh, a story of this individual's interaction with God, right? And that's a totally different story. So I, I wanted, um, I wanted there to be interactions without necessarily, um, having there have to be, uh, a collision, if that makes any sense. And so, um, there's this, the moment in the book when there are these two little girls who are playing on the river and my character is, is sort of going by in a boat that she had, that she's found. Um, and, uh, she believes that you know, she's going to stay in the imaginations of these little girls forever for the rest of their lives, right? Because there's this weird person sort of floating by. But of course, that is her being a European and believing that she's at the center of the world, mm -hmm. right? And of course, the reality in the book is the girls just forget about her <laughs> the next moment because, because she's not that interesting to them. Their yeah. new puppy is much more interesting. Yeah. And so I laughed at that moment because it's such a, like, a. Uh... You know, when you think like, oh, was I annoying to that person the other day? Right. Was I, was I, it's like, bro, they don't care. They, don't care. <laughs> they have moved on. They yeah. have no idea who you are. <laughs> yeah. It's a you problem. <laughs> That's right. Um, you, you're, you're secular now, but you grew up Presbyterian. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, can, was there a moment in which you realized you're like, huh, I don't think I, uh, I believe in God anymore. Well, it was more like I shifted my allegiance to literature because it, I find the, that's where um, God exists in the human, right? In arts, uh, in humanity, and ideas of humanity. And so it's not that it's not that God itself changed, obviously, but where I was focusing on seeing it changed. You know, religion isn't God. It's just uh, it's an articulation of God, something that is so ineffable and so mysterious that no person could ever actually encapsulate what God is, right? Mm -hmm. This is my idea. Um, so I'm not, I don't believe that God doesn't exist. I just think that we lack the vocabulary to actually speak about it. So I lack the vocabulary to speak about it. Other people have found their own. Mm -hmm. um, but I can, I can sort of reflect it through other things, through music, right? Mm -hmm through um, a beautiful piece of sculpture, through something that moves me. I mean, I think that that is a better reflection for me of the ineffable mysteries. Mm -hmm. uh, you were in the middle of writing this book when the idea for Matrix came about, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I, I feel like the two are related in some way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about like the sort of relationship the two books have? Oh, thank you for saying that. I know they're deeply related. They're very separate, right? So you can read each of them yeah. separately and never read the other one. But um, I have this idea to make a triptych. So not trilogy, but a triptych, uh, like a Hieronymus Bosch, right? Um, where I'm sort of seeing from the outside about a thousand years of how we got to where we are now. So Matrix is um, 12th century, right? Catholic Church. And then Vassar Wilds is uh, 1610. 
and um, obviously very Protestant. Um, and uh, the third one, which is killing me, actually, I'm dying. It's like it's murdering me in my sleep at <laughs> night, um, is uh, set now. And so what I really want to do is talk about ideas of, of God, right, and the changeable ideas of God and how those ideas have um, sent us careening through the Anthropocene um, to the, the cusp of absolute catastrophic um, climate, climate times at the moment, which is where we are right now. Yeah. So it, there, there's a larger idea. But if the third book doesn't kill you, kill me, and if it, <laughs> if it ends up actually, well, if it if it does kill me, it won't be written. So therefore, uh -huh. those two books will actually speak to each other also. Right. Yeah. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. So, like I assume for a lot of people, the first Lauren Groff book I read was Fates and Furies. It's this real deep examination of marriage today. You know, what purpose it serves? Who is it for? That sort of thing. I remember when I heard that Groff's follow-up to that book was going to be historical fiction, I, I was, I don't know, disappointed, <laughs> suspicious, a, a scooch less interested, because I wanted to hear her address the issues of today, of the now. In this next bit, Groff talks about how she used to be a snob towards historical fiction too, but then she realized that historical fiction is, you know, ironically, a great tool to talk about today. Well, I mean, I remembered that um, the very best novels that I love are historical fiction, right? I mean, War and Peace is historical fiction. Middlemarch is historical fiction. Um, the best parts of Absalom, Absalom are historical fiction, right? So my snobbery was not a good thing, mm -hmm. uh, and it was not something that I'm proud of. Um, I think... Often when you think of historical fiction, if you're thinking of it in a shallow way, you can think of it as uh, almost tourism in time. And that's not at all what I would like to do, right? I would actually like time to be speaking um, th through the pages of the book, right? To, to have it be the past and the present be sort of resonating like a tuning fork um, through the prose so that in some ways, it contextualizes today in a way that we couldn't possibly do with just a contemporary book, right? So, so that you see that obviously time is cyclical, right? Things that have happened before that are happening now. The, the place where we are now comes from where we were in the past, right? Mm -hmm. So, so understanding all of this as a larger context is really, really important. I think perhaps we may be losing this idea with the, you know, our constant barrage of um, contemporary news just popping up and, and keeping us from seeing um, with a, a longer perspective and uh, more of a landscape of human history. I think it's, it's an important thing. I also think it's a democratic thing. Historical fiction, um, this is our opportunity to, to do what um, 
straight up academic historians whom I love so much perhaps cannot do as they are dependent on the archive. That's what fiction can do, right? It can democratize history in a way. It, um, it doesn't have to be Napoleon standing on the top of a mountain, right? It can be the masses of people swarming to, to create the, that historical moment that could be the interesting thing. Not, not this single hero, which I find a very corrosive and almost evil narrative that we have bought into and we keep perpetuating the single hero. And I think that that has brought us um, immense grief culturally. Yeah. Because like everyone has to deal with the world ending. I mean, right? Yeah. And not everyone is the great hero, right? Sometimes you just die. (laughs) Sometimes you just die. Elon Musk is not going to save us. Right. Technology is not going to save us. The only thing that's going to save us is all of us working together. That's it. We cannot rely on one person. If we think we're going to rely on one person, we are going to die. When I was reading this, it's it's probably because I just read it, um, but I was thinking a lot of Blood Meridian. I love Blood Meridian. Yeah. I love Cormac. There's a there's a moment in this book that it was a nod to Cormac McCarthy. What part? I don't. Is, you, you can find it. it. <laughs> because a lot of that, you know, is turning the myth of the cowboy yeah, on its head, and, and I think that's a lot similar to like the work that you're doing here with yeah. like the colonists. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. I love Cormac McCarthy, and I get into fights a lot with people on the internet about this um, because when when he died, I said, you know, I was really sad, and I thought. He, what he did was he he couldn't understand women, so he didn't really write any real ones ever. Like he wrote a lot of like dead women, yeah. right? and he wrote a couple of women that are not really believable as yeah. women. Um, but so he knew this about himself, and he was able to create these vicious, bloody westerns in which there are no women as like any sort of there's it's a critique of masculinity in particular american masculinity in a very profound way but a lot of men like to read it for the excitement and they yelled at me for saying this they're like there's no critique right it's all just you know it's a western that's what westerns are <laughs> so, <laughs> yo, who's who's reading but like yo this has nothing to say about men and masculinity at all it's just straight up like a lot dudes of rock. people <laughs> a lot of people say this right? okay, yeah yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can argue with that. Too. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. The Please do it. Um, it's not wild to say that. I think a lot of your, your work approaches feminine anger in like mm. different, different angles. How does what the girl goes through, of what parts of feminine anger today is it reflecting? Mm. I think um, the reconsideration of received narratives is something that sparks a lot of female anger. I think right now, especially among people perhaps of my age range, right? So there are things that we grew up believing um, in terms of uh, a really bifurcated gender role, right? Like women are this, men are like this. And now with these beautiful teenagers and young adults who are questioning a lot of gender roles and a lot of ideas about gender, I think I'm feeling, at least personally, a lot of anger at the way that I had been taught to think early on, right? I I think that um, I don't know what to do with it other than to write about it um, or to try to imagine my way further along than I've come um, already. But, uh, you know, 
just the mere fact that um, when I was growing up, it was a very, very common thing for men to say, if women ruled the world, right, um, there would be no war. It'd be really, like, peaceful and wonderful, which on its surface is a lovely thing to think, right? You know, oh, lovely. Mm -hmm. But it's also taking away from not the autonomy and the humanness of women, right? It's, it's putting them on a pedestal mm -hmm. that nobody can actually Achieve. stand on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. So, like, in, in this book, it does remind me of, like, you know, I was just talking about, like, McCarthy or, like, the Hemingway stories, which is, like, the dude camping or even, like, yeah. like Gary Paulson was a hatchet, right? I love that book so yeah. much. Or, yeah, My Side of the Mountain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I yeah. pretended yeah. to read that in class. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's such a good book. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does feel like putting her in the positions yeah. of those dudes, right. those men, right? right. Like, was it intentional to recall those narratives of dudes in the wild oh, with this book? immensely, yeah. right? Yeah. Because if you think of a person alone in, the, in nature, you think of a man. Uh -huh. You always think of a like, man. Like, was that John Krakauer yeah. book? Yes, yeah, Into, Into the, the Wild. wild. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's exactly it. And I thought, how fun would it be to write a book like that, but from, a, well, not fun, but like, yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. would it be to write a book about a woman, yeah. right? Or a, a girl, even. She's uh -huh. a girl. She's not, you know, even basically full grown she's she's a teenager yeah. um and and to see her resilience but also the the stakes and how um profound her ignorance is yeah yeah take it you do a lot of research for these books yes were you like out here camping it was just like yeah. oh i do camp a lot were you like Gotta, just gotta gotta live it gotta do <laughs> gotta. so here's a secret um i am a secret like survivalist but only intellectually so i'm actually okay. not very good at being a survivalist like um so i have a huge library of books about um how to do things right like uh -huh. how to make your own food you know and make it last for a year uh -huh. and to plant things and to go like make a, like a willow for yourself you know uh -huh. like I and I love watching these shows and I love my husband has this thing like during the pandemic in particular it was very very soothing for him to watch this one YouTuber I don't know what his name is where he um, goes out into nature and it's all silent and you sort of see him um, just making a fort and like and building it and all he has is a machete uh -huh. and he's like naked out there doing it and it's like these are these scratch and itch right this and the itch is um, we're all afraid of the future, right? And, and afraid of, particularly now with climate change and, um, uncertainty and things like that. Uh, in a way, they, these narratives of survival serve as a sort of, um, the way that fairy tales served children in, in the past, uh, as an inoculation against the terror of everyday existence, right? Mm -hmm. Bruno Bettelheim said it best about this, but, Fairy tales sort of took um, a child's worst fears, right? Your parents are going to leave you in the middle of the woods starving, right? That is the worst possible thing. And then through the beauty of story, bring you out the other side into survival, right? Mm -hmm. That is that is a gift, right, um, of uh, anti-anxiety medication within a story itself. And I think that these survival stories act the same way, at least to my um, thinking into my like anxious insomniac brain. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. 
The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Andrew Craig, Melissa Gray, Elena Burnett, Tinby Ermias, Ryan Bank, Janaki Mehta, Sarah Handel, and Rose Friedman. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today.